Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest and friend, Lee Jacobs, founder and partner at Edelweiss Capital. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. Awesome. Uh, Lee, do you want to start with a brief introduction of, of who you are, how you got into venture capital, and maybe introducing the topic we're going to focus on today, which is co-founder relationships? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm Lee Jacobs. I'm a founder and managing partner with three other great partners at uh, Edelweiss PC. Yeah, I got here, I got to Silicon Valley in 2010. I worked at Comcast, which acquired um, Plaxo, which is an early social network. Started in, I think, 2002. So that's old school for, for many of the people in the audience, I assume. Yeah, so it was acquired by Comcast, and I, and I worked pretty closely with um, the, the team uh, in Mountain View for about two years. And then I kind of got the bug of being out in um, San Francisco and seeing all the really amazing things that happened here. When I was at Penn, I'd seen a lot of really great entrepreneurs kind of from far start businesses. Um, Jack Abraham was in my class. I was the intern for Venmo uh, when I was at Penn. So I saw a lot of really great companies get started, and I knew that that's what I wanted to focus on. So I moved in 2010 to San Francisco and yeah, started a company called Colingo, which helped people learn English online. I ran that for a few years, and I think that's where we're going to get to you know, I decided that I wanted to um, step aside from being the CEO of the business. I learned a lot in that experience, and I'm happy to, to talk about that. After Colingo, I, I started, um, you know, realizing that what I wanted to do was not actually run a business, but but support other entrepreneurs and effectively be help them be the best versions of themselves and build the best businesses they could. I raised a really small amount of capital, something like three hundred thousand dollars, and made uh, a few investments um, via that LLC one of which was actually in Brazil. It's a company called Descomplica. And then, uh, you know, as I was thinking about how to scale that, AngelList came out with uh, the Syndicates product, which basically put online what I'd been doing offline. It means to say that I'd find opportunities that were really interesting and then go to other investors and say, hey, we should invest in this and create a structure. And when I saw what, what Naval announced uh, in 2013, I was just blown away. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. So I think there's some debate, but I, I think I was either the first or the second person to do an Angelus syndicate. It's a company called Descomplica that was based in Brazil. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, I remember putting the company up and within something like 48 to 72 hours, there was $400,000 of capital ready to invest in the company. And I'd gone from writing really small checks to writing a check like that, it, it kind of um, it ch- it changed my life, frankly. So I did that for, f- I did a number of investments that way. I invested in Game Time, which is like Hotel Tonight for sports tickets and events. And then I worked for Mark Sugarman. I wanted to learn from someone who I really respected and knew that, you know, kind of learn how the, the pros did it, venture investing. So I was there for about a year with Mark at MHS Capital. And then I um, went and started to work at AngelList. Naval had just raised uh, some money um, to scale the team. And I was effectively a basically the target customer for who was going to be there, the people that were going to do more of their AngelList syndicates. I spent some time there helping with um, recruiting a really great angel investors to use the platform. And at the same time, I raised a fund with three other people who I had been kind of casually working with over the last few years. 
Um, one of them is Todd Masonis, who founded Plaxo. Another is Elaine Wary, who founded Nebo. And the third is uh, Brian Balfour, who was the VP of growth at HubSpot uh, and now runs Reforge. So we formed uh, this fund. It's called Edelweiss. You know, I've been looking through our portfolio in the last month or so and kind of doing a retrospective, but we've invested in about 34 companies and it'll probably be around $8 million by the end of the year in capital invested. Yeah, we're, we're, we've supported a bunch of really great entrepreneurs and, you know, it's still super early, but we've, you know, we invested in Blue Bottle, sold, and we have a few others that, yeah, that we're super excited about, like Wonder School, Pipeify, and super excited about the one that we did together, which is Verisim Life. So, yeah, that's effectively the story. Yeah. And let's go back to the code lingo, uh, because you, you had a post a couple months ago, which is a really great post on how to break up with your co-founder. And there, there's not a lot of literature out there about co-founder relationships just broadly. And when you think about you know, what is the thing that c- kills early stage startups the most, it's co-founder breakups. So why don't you unpack a little bit what, what happened from in, in your experience and, and the lessons you, you took from it and that you think are generalizable to, to others? Yeah, sure. So Ben and I, and I should really give Ben, Ben Lowenstein, who's now at Airbnb, but was my co-founder at the time. He had the idea for Colingo and I came on and, you know, helped him raise capital and was the, became the CEO. It was very much his baby and his creation. And I helped him kind of turn it into a company. So as I was running the business, you know, I'd, I'd get up and, you know, every, for about a few months. And I realized that like, I felt like I wasn't adding as much value as I wanted to. And maybe it was the stage of the business. We were still very much in figuring out product market fit and I couldn't code. I was the um, business guy. So maybe I felt like I wasn't adding as much value as I could. And, but I think in retrospect, it was really that I just don't, I'm just not an operator. I'm much more of a coach uh, and kind of more in the investor type. So anyway, over a few months, I realized that I just didn't want to run the business anymore. And I realized that, that I was doing the business a disservice by maintaining being the CEO. So I remember very, um, very vividly having to tell Ben, who, you know, who was a friend of mine, but not super close. We had a very professional business relationship at the time. And I'll get to sort of where it is now, which I think is interesting part of the story. But yeah, so I just told him that I felt like I needed to to leave the business. And I think he was pretty floored and shocked. And um, it was a really difficult, you know, conversation, frankly. And, and those weeks in which we had, it just happened, it was super raw. And in a lot of ways, and there's been a number of analogies around, you know, the co-founder relationships is much like a marriage. It, it was effectively me telling him that I wanted to divorce him. And it's hard not to take that personally. Just like it would probably be hard if a partner told you that they were going to divorce you. Yeah, so we, we kind of had that, that conversation. And, and one of the things that I think we can get about things that I've learned and key things, we, we actually had an executive coach at the time who really guided us through that process of breaking up and focusing on what was best for the company in the long run and not turning it into a t- terrible fight. And, and to this day, Ben Lowenstein is one of my best friends. He was... Um, you know, one of the, the best men at my wedding. And I'm told it's pretty rare for when co-founders split up to be close. And I think there's some things that we got totally wrong in the process of uh, breaking up, but there were some things that we got, we got right. And yeah, I learned, I learned a bunch of stuff and happy to dive into any of them. And yeah, they're all kind of, uh, you got wrong that is shareable. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, I think I had no, I knew way earlier that I needed to leave, then I actually talked about it. 
it's kind of like you kind of, when you know, and probably the analogy is true, if you're in any sort of partnership and you kind of know you shouldn't be in it, it's so hard to have that conversation, the breakup conversation. So I waited too long, frankly. Uh, and it was probably a detriment to the business uh, or it was a detriment to the business because I was half, you know, half in for a period of time. So I would have, the, I would have been much more honest with myself and not made it. I initially, when I thought I was going to leave, I thought it was this terrible thing and I was letting down the company and investors and all of those things. But the truth was, is that by not making, by not leaving, by not being authentic about where I was, it was actually more of a disservice than if I stayed along. So I would have um, had the conversation much earlier. I think that's a mistake we made. When you see other co-founders break up, like what mistakes do other co-founders make in, in co-founder relationships in navigating tough ones? Uh, you know, now that I've been investing for a few years, and as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's the, the most or one of the most common ways the companies um, fall apart. I've seen really bitter fights within companies. And yeah, I think the biggest thing is people take it really personally um, and make it about them. You know, just like in any relationship, there's partnerships that are going to work. And it's just actually the partnership that, is, uh, that doesn't, isn't going to be the thing that works. It's not that you, Lee, or you, whoever is, 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 a, is bad. <laughs> it's just that this isn't the right relationship. So I feel like when someone comes to them and say, hey, you know, it doesn't feel like this is working out, people take it very personally. And then that becomes kind of this, you know, a high school brawl like mentality where it's just like high school kids yelling at each other. I've seen that happen a few times. It's trying to not take things personally and really think about what's best for the company. Um, And that's, you know, what's best for everyone in the long run. I also think in the heat of the moment, it can feel existential. Like, oh my God, let's say you're getting fired. Let's say your co-founders come to you and say you're, you're about to get fired. They want you out or you're, you're something like that. It can feel, you know, because so much of your identity is often tied up into the business, which I think is a big issue in, in a lot of different ways. But it can feel completely existential. But, you know, knowing that it's going to be okay in the long run is, uh, is a really difficult thing to know, but it's really important to sort of have a wide view and that's where I've, you know, my experience with Colingo, I have been able to coach entrepreneurs on saying, hey, I know this feels crazy and terrible for you right now, but A, it's normal. Not normal, but it's, it's, it's pretty common. It's not something people talk about, but it happens all the time. And B, you're going to be okay. Uh, it's, it's a long game. And, and you know, uh, I learned a lot from Naval at Angelus. One of the things was that things are, it's a, it's a really long-term game and things compound over time. So, um you know, this is your, maybe your first or second company, but it's not the, the end of your life uh, and things will be okay in the long run. So I think that's a key thing. Um, and then another thing that I really advise people on is, is having a third party. It could be a coach. It could be, there, there are now people that specialize in this. It could be a mediator. It could be an investor. And I've seen that work pretty well where there's actually someone who everyone really respects who can be kind of a third party to talk about what's the best way to, to make the split happen. Doing it on your own is, is really hard. And, and not, not, you know, I think it's really important not to be ashamed that it's happening. People hide these things for too long. And um, as I said earlier, like getting to the truth faster is, is probably best for the long run. How should companies <laughs> to investors, include investors, do not include investors, you know, as it's going on? 
Yeah, I think it, I think it needs to be a phased approach. Often, you know, hopefully in a seed uh, company, there is, you know, your lead investor um, who either has a board seat or is majority control shares or, or, um, you know, is in kind of the pole position. That's probably the first person you need to go to. And, you know, it shouldn't, it's like, it shouldn't be an email. <laughs> I've kind of seen that happen. It, it should be obviously an in-person conversation and it should be just, and hopefully there's a good relationship there and there's been, you know, multiple, you know, seeing you through the whole, seeing you through the, the business in general. Hopefully this isn't the, the second conversation you've had. <laughs> you know, the, the first one being the financing and the second one being up, I'm out. Hopefully it's a, it's a conversation that comes into a, into a good context. And yeah, I think it's really important to, to be honest with them about what's going on and the best that you can tell them why, because frankly, like if you say things that are, that are not true or that, you know, make you look better or others, most people can see through that and it will be detrimental to the, what the investor cares about is basically they care about the company and making sure the company is in a place that has the best chance of success going forward. So the best that you can kind of explain what's happening within the organization, they will feel like they have context to, um, to help the company um, make the best of a tough situation. So I think it's really important to have that conversation and then have it, as I said, quickly um, when you know what's happening, I think. And then after that, you can talk to the the one or two per people that are sort of the key people in the business about messaging it to the rest of the investor base. So I think it's sort of a phased approach. Zooming out, why do you think co-founder relationships break down in the first place? And what can people do to prevent it? It's a good question. I mean, I don't know, someone needs to do a study, but I wonder if it's happening more or less. And there's so many companies getting started by people that don't have much context together and don't know what it's like to really be in the trenches and, and working together. So typically it's, it's communication. I mean, just like in any, in anything there, you know, you may have an issue with someone you didn't like the way they did this or that, or they communicated this or told this employee that, and you kind of push it under the rug but frankly, it's, it's probably there in any all of your interactions. And then, you know, I, I had someone come to someone recently and they were just shocked about, they asked them to leave, wanted to leave and, and they didn't see it coming. So clearly there was a communication breakdown between them and they hadn't been really telling each other how they felt about, you know, what they've been doing. And so it's important to have a lot of the hard conversations along the way and not push them, you know, under the rug and then have it be a surprise. If you can have those really tough conversations, I think you can get through hard times. And, and look, everyone's, I think a common thing is when you're starting a company, you think that it's, it's completely, it's terrible and it's the hardest thing you've ever done. And, you know, you have self-doubt about yourself. I, I think it's important to realize that the other person across the table probably is going through the same thing. Maybe you don't talk about it. So the, the degree at which you can build, you know, empathy among one another, I think is really, uh, is a really important thing for, for co-founder relationships and, and frankly, any relationship. So don't be surprised that if you're having a hard time, your co-founder is too, and, and actually having a tough conversation about that and being honest about it can lead to a stronger relationship among you, among the partners. 
Yeah, I, I see a couple also other structural reasons are one that you sort of have two, you know, uh, two co-founders are sort of generalists. And as the company scales, you need more specialists. And, and maybe that person isn't good enough to be your CTO. They're good enough to be CTO of a five person company, but maybe not a 50 person company or a hundred person company. And there's sort of no longer sort of a role for two generalist founders. Like maybe there's one that's the face of the company or so one is that the company outgrows the co-founder is one common situation I find. And the other is that there's sort of a, you know, communication breakdowns and sometimes even jostling for, for power um, in that there's just sort of, you know, divergent views and how, how the company should be run and people disagree and, and there's a breakdown, breakdown from there. Yeah. They, the, it's, you know, you have a time and a place for a company. You may have been really good at raising that first round of capital and not good at much else. And, you know, you may not, it may not be the right business for you. And there's a, there's a bunch of people in, I think, in our network that are really good at the zero to one stage of starting companies and may not be good at the one to five stage or one to five to 10. So I think that's pretty common. What have you seen in scenarios where it's two people disagreeing? Uh, so it's one thing to, you know, for a person in your situation, you know, someone sort of wanted to leave, but what about it's two people disagreeing on the future of the company and they sort of have, uh, you know, about just as much power as like, how are co-founder disputes <laughs> resolved where both wants the other to leave? Yeah, that's, that's super tricky. So it really depends. I think ultimately it comes to a head where, you know, one, one kind of has to go. And frankly, if the situation isn't working, it's not like, you know, you're holding on to something. If the other person wants you to go and the other person wants them to go, it's like, well, how about a, a more uh, easier that, that's that. Yeah. That's that one. Someone's got to go. How about where someone wants the other to go and the other wants to stay? Yeah, that's pretty, that, that, that's common. I mean, I've seen a situ- situations where people basically say, look, we're leaving <laughs> or you're leaving and you choose. And then the, per- the person who's been asked to leave has to make a decision. And that decision is either, you know, I can stay on the company and lose, you know, the part of the founding team and, or I leave and, and do what's best for the company. So it's really tough to be mature, especially for young founders, but to make the decision that's, you know, best for the company is, is, is tough. And that's where I've seen it work out in a positive way where, where the founder basically said, look, this is what's best for the business. Even though I don't like, I don't agree with this. um, I've decided that to preserve the chance that the business has a success because of the situation we are, I I need to step away. That's a, a scenario where I think, you know, it takes two to tango. If you're really not wanted by your, co-founder then it's not going to work <laughs> and similarly when you're trying to get into a hot investment and say i'm gonna i want to come in you can't you can't force it if the company doesn't want you as an investor you don't want to be involved in that relationship anyway because it's not going to work so perhaps similar to uh, the, you know the marriage uh, analogy is a lot of it also depends on on who you pick to be your you know partner in the first place how do you think people should be evaluating co-founders or perhaps more precisely what conversations should people have in sort of the co-founder dating period yeah it's a good it's a good point i mean look the best relationships are those that are people that have worked together at various small teams on companies and or have started companies together so obviously having a history there's a big difference between being interested in a particular space uh, or opportunity and then actually going into the trenches and being there when things are really 
it's hard and tough together. So, you know, the much, as much work as you can do before deciding to start a company, I think is important. And then, yeah, I think it's sort of like, uh, maybe there's another analogy, like the prenup, like me, you know, having the conversation of what, if this isn't working, let's make sure that we're honest about one another to one another. So I think going, setting up a cadence for how the communication is going to happen with the two of them or three or four or whatever is I think really, really important. So the much, as much, as much as you can do upfront to talk about what if things go wrong is, is super, I think super important. So maybe there's the startup prenup that, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, pre-mortem if, if it doesn't work out. Why, why would it? Yeah, so as many conversations, it's like, Hey, what if this doesn't work? What do you think is the, how do, how will we know? And again, I think having a coach is so important the, you know, I would, I recommend all the companies in which I invest in the seed stage to go and hire a coach that they can be a really important, hopefully impartial view on issues coming up. And then also if there is need to be a, a fight or a breakup that, that they can help. Yeah. Other topics I think people should talk about when co-founder dating or when just starting to work together is what, what does success look like? You know, for some people, you know, they won't stop until like, for example, like literally, you know, what, what's the lowest you'd sell for? I know that's sort of a silly question, but like other people, you know, some people said, hey, if we could sell our company for $500 million or $100 million or even $50 million, that'd be a huge success. Uh, and others say, hey, no, we're going uh, public or bust. And that's just sort of a you know, divergent view of what success looks like. But other areas could be like, what's important in team culture? Or how big do we want to be? Or do we want to be remote or distributed? Or just what's important as we build out this company? Uh, what are our sort of you know, non-negotiables or, or things that we we really care about and, and what are our individual missions as we build, build this company and how do we want to infuse that throughout the company? Yeah, I think it, that stuff is so important. And I think, unfortunately, as more companies get started, which is generally good, there are much more shotgun marriages than before, you know, another uh, analogy um, where people just quickly start companies. It's so easy to, you know, get the entity set up and, and all of that where they haven't had these conversations. So, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, you go to Las Vegas, and next thing you know, you have a co-founder. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that's similar to the investor-founder relationship. You know, as an angel investor and where we've been sitting for the last few years, we've been okay with smaller exits. So a company being upfront about that is good. But if you, you know, if you go and take venture capital, you're on the, you're on the hamster wheel for a much larger exit. So being aligned with the partner, whether it's your co-founder or investor uh, is, is super important because, you know, it'll come out in the wash one day or the other, one way or the other. Yeah, totally. Before transitioning to other topics, are there any other elements related to co-founder relationships, breakdowns, breakups, anything else around that, that you'd like to cover? Yeah, I think, knowing that you're definitely not alone, like there, it's a very common situation and, and talking to others who have been through this or other people in your network can be really useful uh, and not feeling like you're, you're on loan. And the other thing I think is important, and this is to the point of like, it's a long game. I, it's going to be important to sort of, even if you could take all the equity that you had or extract all the value you could out of when you leave, you shouldn't because it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a long-term relationship. So I, I really recommend trying leaving something on the table 
and, you know, Ben and I are a good example. Uh, Colingo, you know, I had all my shares vested and I gave up a bunch to make sure that there was going to be enough for someone else who would come in. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that I did for a bunch of reasons, but it also has really preserved Ben and I's relationship. So I think um, doing that is, is really important. Thinking about the long term, not just that individual one company. Another mistake I see people make in co-founders is sometimes people don't want to pick a CEO. They just say, hey, we're two equal co-founders and we'll just agree on everything. And I, I, in my experience, I think you have to have someone who has at least final say in the sense of you know, giving even investors confidence of how are you guys going to resolve disagreements. Um, and that's you know, just because someone is final say doesn't mean you still can't be two equal co-founders or, or feel like you're you know, fundamentally shaping the business if you don't want final say. But I think it's, it's very important to have, to have that. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I agree. It's, a, it's a, probably a bad sign if you can't agree on titles oh. in the early days, you know, for the relationship. Part, so. Yeah, I think I heard this quote somewhere, which is like, the most important thing to agree on is how decisions get made. Uh, and to, to have buy-in on is how, how decisions get made, because that just sets the infrastructure um, and people will feel good, good about it. So yeah, both people, if, if, if you're really upset that you don't have title say, it's probably going to show up elsewhere and blow up at some point. Yeah. The framework is really important. Yeah. Cool. So let's move on to some other investing related topics. So one is what did you learn from Mark Sugarman? What lessons did you take away from that experience? Yeah. I learned so much from him. Yeah. For other for people that don't know, Mark is a really thoughtful, I think very successful, objectively very successful investor. One thing I learned is, and I think I, uh, it's an idea that I've sort of taken out of is that there are different strategies for different types of people in investing and there's no right way. So Mark is, is very thoughtful, very deliberate and really wants to understand the businesses that he's investing in and his, you know, his investment style is reflective of who he is. And he, you know, makes, I don't know what it is now, but one or two or three investments per year. So he's, he's very methodical and thoughtful about his investments. And that's great when, when Mark invests, he's, yeah, he knows a ton about the business and can be really valuable. And that fits him. That's his style. And for, you know, someone who is a bit more of a, you know, a deal maker, connector, they may, and, you know, wa- wants to be involved in a lot of different things. And may, their style may be suited towards making a lot more investments. And that's just who they are. And they can make that work by, you know, making sure that the portfolio construction is set up right and making sure that they're working within the right framework of their strategy. So I think there are um, different, just like any kind of a founder, I don't know, market fit, there's a uh, investor strategy fit. And also I learned a ton about discipline. I mean, you know, I wanted to do a ton of deals that when I was there and Mark, uh, would would say would say no that because they don't didn't fit into the strategy, and he was it's so hard when you see oh my god this person's investing it's so smart or or this is going to be this massive thing it could be a billion dollar multi billion like and having the wherewithal to say no and really the self belief in your strategy and discipline is, is something I really learned. Another thing that I learned from Mark is that it's okay to be a generalist. There are a number of funds that are set up with very particular pieces. And it sounds to me like, you know, obviously you guys at Village Global have themes, but 
but you're pretty general in terms of what you're investing in. You know, Mark is invested in stuff like Opower, which is, you know, a SaaS business for the energy industry all the way to um, Udemy to more of sales out- outreach, which is a sales enablement tool. So he's, he's done a lot of type, different types of investments across the board. Yeah, he's, he's been very general. And that's something that I, I've done as well. Like we invested in a bone broth company uh, to a workflow tool. So it's been pretty broad in terms of what we've done. I've learned that you can be a generalist, um, and that's okay. That was a pretty important learning for me. I know one thing you think a lot about is, is growth uh, as an investor. So how does one, you know, it's, it's very obvious to think about how one grows as a specialist going deep in the field. How does one grow uh, as a generalist, uh, become a generalist? And how, how do you think about learning as an investor? Yeah, so one thing that I'm doing now is I've been going to board meetings for companies that I'm particularly involved in. And I'm, I've just been learning and sitting in the room and, and listening to other people that I respect and how they interact with the companies and how they support them. So for me, I'm, I'm taking a board seat of one of our portfolio companies now for the first time, and, and it's going to be interesting. You know, I've never officially been on a, a company's board that I've invested in. So I just try to keep challenging myself for like what have I not done yet <laughs> and trying to be at the growth edge so I, I think the thing that it's really difficult specialist or generalist about being an investor is that the feedback cycle is so long in our business that you don't really know you're good <laughs> for a long time you know there's obviously markups and all of that stuff that, that you can incrementally understand that are, over time you see that you're okay but but Figuring out if you're good or not is really difficult. So how do you know the decisions you've made are good? So it's something that I struggle with, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Like, how do you think about learning? But I'm, uh, I'm trying to do it as best as I can, but I'm curious, like, you know, what have you seen and what do you, what do, you do? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm still, still wrestling with, with, with that question in the sense of, you know, I'm, I'm by nature a generalist in terms of, you know, my, my experience and the deals that I've, that I've done to date, but I'm wondering if I have to become more of a, more, more of a specialist, but it's interesting because I'll go into a topic like crypto and then I'll be like, Oh my God, there's all these subspecialties <laughs> that you're know, within it. And I'm not going to be like the world's most expert in like privacy coins because Village Global is a generalist fund or a topic like healthcare. Like, Oh, you know, there's all these subspecialties within it and all these where people have been spending, you know, decades plus just working in those fields. So I, I think there's a question of, you know, what's your individual experience What's your fund strategy and everything about their screams generalist, but even as a generalist, can I be a sort of a, a stronger generalist in certain areas? Like maybe I don't know the most about, you know, privacy coins, but it like broadly be able to zoom out and look at a space and be able to identify trends, patterns, talent, you know, uh, be like strategically networked where you can leverage domain experts to, to help you make decisions, but to help you make decisions that we do in our network leader model, but also to know enough to be, to be dangerous and to be able to, to really evaluate. But yeah, that's all to say that still definitely, definitely figuring it out and a, a few years in and feel like even a decade from now uh, or two decades, from now, I'll still feel like, oh my God, there's so much, so much to learn. And that's what makes venture so exciting. Yeah, totally. The thing that I tell myself about the generalist thing is the stage at which we're investing or Josh Cobbleman once told me this. It's like, he was like, I asked him, is it market or team? And he was like, it's all team. The, 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 the you know, he mentioned a company he invested in that was going after healthcare or something. And then six months later, they're totally different. And now it's working. And it was, 
So I think when you're evaluating early stage investment, it's okay to be general because the idea in the market may actually be different six months down the road. What you're really evaluating is the, the person and how they think about stuff. And I think you're right. Like you're never going to know everything about privacy coins, but what I try to do is like evaluate why people have made decisions they do not know what the, not to have a point of view on the right decision that they should have made, but like understand the thinking to why the decision was made. It's the product is a framework for um, you ask about the product in the market as a framework to evaluate people's thinking. That can be a very general thing to do. Right? Yeah. So, so how do you think about evaluating talent, evaluating founders, evaluating teams? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've been learning and as I've looked back at our portfolio, the things that are, you know, quote unquote working and those that are not quote unquote not working, because as I said, it's so early, it's hard to know. But resilience, the mentality of, of really of, of having resilience. So, you know, I, I look at a company like Pipeify, for example, which you know, it was founded by a guy that came from Brazil. And it's not like he came from Rio or, or, or Sao Paulo. He came from the eighth largest uh, city in, uh, in in Brazil. And I remember looking at him and being like, he, you know, he came to Silicon Valley and I was like, wow, like, how did you get here? You know, I moved from, from Philadelphia to San Francisco. That felt hard for me. And here's this guy that his English wasn't great. And he kind of just showed up. And and what I realized was that it took a lot for him to even just get there. And he had customers in the product that was working. You know, I, I basically made the bet on that idea that he was really a tough guy. And also the product was really interesting and all those things. But that investment is going really well. And I think the thing to know about Alessio is that he's super resilient. And, you know, the, so frankly, I think immigrants can be good can be a good proxy for sort of our, they have the entrepreneurial um, uh, spirit. And there's much talked about as, I don't know what the percentage of the Fortune 500 that are immigrants, but it's pretty high. So to answer your question more directly, I think resilience is a, evidence of resilience is a really important indicator for me. I know a founder that uh, lived in a, um, you know, in a parking lot, <laughs> in a mobile home, <laughs> you know? Yes. So uh, I think that's, uh, you know, that shows that they're really scrappy and, and that's another thing I learned from Mark too. Like he always would evaluate how scrappy a founder was. That was a really big indicator for him. And I think that's uh, something that I try to figure out and suss out. Yeah, totally. For, for me also, uh, echo everything you said. Another thing I, I look for is, is rate of learning. You know, voice ops, which is an, another one of our investments that a team of three technologists who had no sales experience, uh, trained themselves like from scratch in sales to be able to, uh, get sort of a few hundred K in ARR before their seed round. So sort of, you know, show that they can, uh, they can teach themselves and they can learn very quickly. Another one of my uh, companies, uh, uh, Spring Discovery is a longevity company, uh, company. Ben Caymans was former CTO of Khan Academy, knew nothing about the field, but very quickly assembled some of the best scientific researchers and operators uh, in the space to be, to be on his extended team and was able to get up to speed very, very quickly. And that gave us confidence that, uh, that he could, you know, apply, uh, apply that same rate of learning to whatever challenge he was going to face. Yeah, I think that's a really good, that's another thing that you can evaluate as a generalist, Not, nothing to do with the space, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a good, I think that's so true. And, and, and uh, maybe another proxy for how you, how quickly someone can learn is how quickly they ship, like the rate at which they've shipped, not that they're getting it right, but they're actually like going and learning and 
from various product mistakes or whatever. Um, that's another kind of fully trailing indicator of, of learning, which is like the rate at which someone is, is making iterations on the product, whether the right ones or the wrong ones, but they're still. Yeah. How have you thought about uh, you personally uh, investing in, in something like crypto? I, I know you've surrounded yourself with, with experts, both uh, you know, investors and op- operators uh, building in, in space, but just how, how have you personally in your own learning gotten up to speed in within crypto or how do you approach it from your generalist lens? Yeah. I mean, I was just having a conversation this morning about it. It's very, what I think I've been looking for. And by the way, we've gone really, really slowly. What I've been doing is I've set up like a, a working group basically of four people that we meet every morning, actually Wednesday morning. We talk about various investments and we're doing, you know, SPVs to do them as we haven't really started raising a fund for that. And, there's one of the people that may actually run with that idea. So yeah, I, I surrounded myself with people that have known much more than I did. And what I'm really trying to have is like the lens of like what problems exist out there that need to be solved. And, and it's very fundamentally like, can crypto actually solve these problems? And not being sucked into this is a really awesome technology and has all this potential. And what if this could happen? What if that could happen? but coming from the lens of like what problem is there that can actually be solved from uh, um, using this new decentralized technology. So trying to be disciplined about that has been pretty important for us. So it's, it's applying that, those principles to a new space. And with crypto, yeah, we've gone slowly. I think the next year is going to be so interesting because so many of the people that came into the market will likely leave that are, we're not really that interested in it. And those that are sticking around are problems that are, you know, the hardcore, the hardcore people uh, that really believe in it for the right reasons. So that's sort of how I've been approaching uh, the crypto stuff. That's kind of it. That's kind of it. It's, it's not that dissimilar than how I would have approached any other new space. One thing we both talk about and been interested in is uh, investing globally, investing in immigrants, but also investing globally. You obviously got your you know, start in, in Brazil, but how, how have you advised others to think about investing globally and how has your thinking evolved there? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. There was a time where I would go down to Brazil and there was a lot of copycat stuff. It was just like, oh, this is working in the US, we're going to apply it here. And people that basically apply just the copy and paste model were, were often wrong. But I think there are now actually interesting examples that I've seen in the last few years that are applying to local markets where on the surface, they look like, I don't know, the, the scooter company that's now in um, Brazil. Or there's a good example of a delivery business that would look like, I don't know, Deliveroo or Postmates that was operating in Mexico from cut into the go. It's just a copycat. But the companies that are actually applying the local realities. Um, so one of the examples was instead of doing on um, this a few years ago, but instead of doing stuff online, like an American coming down to, to Mexico would have been like, oh, we should have just taken the transactions over using online payment. But the thing about what's cultural about Mexico is people weren't comfortable with that. So it was still in cash payments for the delivery service. So I guess the idea of applying, yes, there's a lot to learn from things that are working in other markets, but really making sure that you have a local understanding of the cultural realities and where things are and not force an, a, a different model onto, onto a, uh, a new geography is, is really important. You know, for me at this stage, 
I, I get a lot of deal flow from Brazil specifically, and I am often wanting to work through people that I know and trust that I have a long-term relationship with down there. If they're either supporting or starting the company or investing themselves, I really leverage their knowledge because they have much more data on the person than I, than I usually would. So I think a lot about having local people that are in each market. Yeah. And then frankly, like uh, there's a bunch of companies that are um, started internationally that can be global in their nature. Pipeify is a good example of that. Uh, And what I like about investing in in immigrants and globally is that, you know, I'm not going to be good at product advice or growth strategies. You know, my partners may, may do that. But what I can help with is accessing a network. So I feel like there's a lot of room for me to help these people, these entrepreneurs. So that's where I get excited. Like I can actually help them. And it's, I think, a good investment, obviously. So I kind of look for... Yeah. So the things I would, I would add is, is to play where you have an advantage and maybe more importantly, don't play where you, where you don't have an advantage. And for me, I'm lucky in some sense that my, my mom is Colombian and, and my dad is Israeli. So I've spent a lot of time in, in both places. and. Perhaps my most, you know, it's still early, but perhaps my most successful investment to date is, uh, is Rappi, uh, which is a sort of Instacart for, for Latin America and is in Colombia and has, has been doing gangbusters. And I've invested in another Colombian company since and decided to do more in Latin America as well as, uh, as well as investing in, in Israeli companies. But that means I'm not doing anything in, say, China or India or, you know, most other parts of the world because I'm saying, Hey, this is where I'm. I, Eric, personally, am, am not speaking for village here, but I'm focused and, and have a have an advantage. Yeah, I think it's a good question. There's a Fred Wilson blog post at some point. He always likes to ask the question, like, why me? You know, yeah. why am I lucky enough to see this opportunity? And, you know, and, and if you can't answer that question, it's likely that there's not a good bad reason why you're seeing it. So for me, when I went down to Brazil for the first time, the reason why I was able to see stuff, frankly, I, I wouldn't get access to good stuff back then that had no brand or name or anything. But showing up in Brazil, just having staying Silicon Valley, I had access to the top people. So the answer to why I was able to see good entrepreneurs there was because I'd gotten on a plane and came from a place that um, people wanted to learn from. But if you can't answer, like, you know, the, the odds of you coming into a market and just showing up and finding the best opportunity seem pretty low. International markets like to call this idea like the helicopter VC. They always used to criticize the, the people that came in and come in, you know, into a market, make a bunch of investments and leave quickly. You know, they call them helicopter VC. So trying not to be that is, I think, important. Yeah. Talk a little bit about why it's made most sense for you to not have sort of a macro thesis about the world and to be more sector agnostic. Why do you think that makes most sense as a real estate investor? Yeah, I think it comes back to the thing I said earlier, just the team, because so much of this is going to be betting on the person at the stage at which we're investing. You know, what I say is I try not to have a point of view on a particular market. That's another thing I learned from Mark. I kind of want the entrepreneur to tell me why the opportunity is exciting. I mean, I'm not talking to their customers. I'm not spending hours and days thinking about a product that's going to help a bunch of people. For me to come in with the idea of like, I know what's best for a particular customer set is kind of asinine. So I try to let the entrepreneur show me why various opportunities are interesting. 
and then kind of get excited behind that. And then eventually I end up learning about a particular space. And, you know, I assume both of us have learned more than we thought we would about drug, the drug discovery space with Verisim life, for example. But for, for Joe and that investment, it was just like, here is this super passionate, smart woman, <laughs> really crazy about what she was doing. And she got me excited about what she was doing. I didn't wake up that morning and say, I'm going to invest in that. Same thing with the bone broth business I invested in. Like I didn't wake up that morning and was like, I'm going to invest in bone broth. Justin, the entrepreneur there, got us excited about it. So being sector agnostic at the stage we are, I, I think can, can work when you let the entrepreneur show you the opportunities. Yeah, totally. You don't want to be you know, claiming to be able to predict the future yourself, but you want to be sort of strong enough of a generalist that when an entrepreneur comes into your door and says, here's the future, you can discern whether you know, it makes sense or not. Yeah. You know, I think about the, the investors that I really look up to. A lot of them are generalists. Now that I'm thinking about it, Cyan Bannister, total generalist. Mike Moritz, generalist. Josh Koppelman, he was just telling me about this bio business he invested in. I mean, he started with an e-commerce business at half.com. So it, total generalist. You know, so it, it's interesting to think about. And clearly there are examples of very specialized, you know, investors that are super successful. But again, it's just, for me, for someone who likes to think about a lot of different things, it it's very much fits my personality of wanting to be about a lot of different stuff and be in a lot of different places. So it's, again, back to the investor uh, strategy fit. Well, and, and maybe to close here, while you are a um, generalist, there is sort of an emerging thesis around next-gen franchises that you've been exciting, uh, excited about and have, have invested alongside. Why don't you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I literally thought about this yesterday, so it's new. <laughs> but I was talking to a company actually in China that's doing online through a good friend of ours who invested in, in it. And it's a U.S. It's a French entrepreneur building company in China that's doing basically an online food franchise business. So that's so basically they're they're making the food. They've built this brand. They've outsourced the uh, delivery and they've outsourced the customer acquisition to basically the Grubhub of China. And what they're doing is basically franchise building the brand and allowing for franchises. So that's one example. And then if you look at what Bird did yesterday, I thought that was really interesting. And they basically are franchising Bird, where they're allowing people to build up their own little um, Bird communities or or markets, leveraging what Bird has created, which is um, you know the hardware and, the, and I assume the software comes with it. Uh, and then Wonder School, which is another one of my investments is basically building an, uh, an online franchise for, or marketplace franchise for uh, the, the, you know, the childcare um, and preschool industry. So I think um, maybe you could call it the future of work, but because, you know, there's a lot of people that are now wanting to take their skills and do their own thing kind of broadly, and there's technology that can help them fill in the gaps of what they can't do, which is in the case of Wonder School, for example, teachers want to be focused on teacher teaching students, but don't want to be focused on the administration and having to market. Uh, and that's where, you know, Wonder School can really help. So I think that there will be more and more of these, basically call them franchises or small little things that will enable small business owners to do what they're meant to do and everything and technology will fill in the rest. 
and it, it's uh yeah it's it's an it's a I can just think of three examples in one day yesterday that I was seeing a lot of similarities between. I don't know if you've seen anything like that or if there's business. I mean, in some ways, Shopify created that for a lot of online e-commerceers too. Interesting. In sort of a different, and just this is a different. I am seeing a lot of like one medical forex, like the brick and mortar. Uh, combined with technology, and it's different exactly from from your describing. But yeah, it's like similar. It's similar. Yeah, a few years ago, people would have you know said no way for brick and mortar, but now it's making more and more sense in some areas, and, and that being one of them. Se- segmenting along alongside disease or population, whether it's like one medical for musculoskeletal conditions, or one medical for I don't know, diabetes, or one medical for you know, women's health, like a private Planned Parenthood, and we've invested in a couple of those couple mm-hmm. of spaces. In fact, we were just you and I were just looking at one that you you passed to us. Great talking to you today and very thankful for all your uh, support throughout the, throughout the years and in friendship, of course, and excited to do more together on, on all fronts. So uh, with that, where can people find out more uh, about you online slash what should they uh, stay tuned for or any plugs? Yeah, I'm uh, angel.co slash Lee and then edelweiss.vc is, the, is our website. And Lee has a great set of blog posts uh, online, so definitely make sure you check those out as well. Thanks so much for coming on, Lee. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 